Welcome to Essential Coaching Conversations with Kyle and Asim. The real, relevant, necessary conversations to help you navigate coaching, teaching, learning, and life. Celebratory episode, Kyle. We've hit a milestone of episode 50. Episode 50. We made it 50 episodes of, and this is excluding kind of like the special edition episodes or like the little trailer episodes and stuff like that. This is 50 episodes full of content. Uh, what an exciting time. It's a big deal, man. We made it. I remember us talking about five and 10 and kind of been going through you know 20 30 40 and talking about 50 and it's really cool I mean, we've been going for close to a year now i want to say um so right around you know 50 episodes with a couple of of specials um within that first year and you know we we had sort of a vision and a mission for the first year of the pod and i would say we've done a pretty good job sticking to it and the kind of the hardest thing is the consistency part right just mm -hmm. showing up every week regardless of how busy we've gotten i mean you and i have both changed jobs and you know roles and positions in different places and you know life kind of never ceases to stop and so just i guess a quick little pat on the back to both of us for showing up each week yeah i would i would say so i mean we've we've had a couple of times where we've been sort of like at the wire for oh, our yeah. release time um i'd probably say like two months ago i think we i, I might have just posted it at the time that we finished recording it it was like 11 30 at night and it was supposed to mm -hmm. go out at midnight i was like let's give them a half an hour early right it um, reminded me of the uh like the south park um shows like the little documentary where they talk about how like they're literally running the episode yeah, to the yeah. tv studio like five minutes before it goes on air because it takes them you know like they, to try to stay so current right like you can't yeah. do it too far in advance and that was that was kind of running through my mind. Uh, even last week, I mean, we recorded the, the night of, and it's just, you're kind of praying that technology is on your side and you don't have any snafus because you're not leaving yourself a lot of, uh, Boy, that a lot was, of that leeway. Was an issue in and of itself last week, wasn't it? Like yeah. we tried something new and that was a harrowing five minutes where we didn't know where the recording yeah. was. And we were about an hour and a half away from release time. So Trey Parker and, and Matt, was it Matt Parker and Trey Stone? We feel you guys, you know, like, creators of south park we feel you but yep. uh episode 50 we need to we need to do our athlete shout outs and i think this one will come as no surprise as i am a spurs fan so my shout out is to the admiral david robinson and kyle i can maybe see from your reaction was that going to be yours as well i mean he was the first one so we talked last week about how we haven't had the same one and when 50 i thought you know robinson and i thought okay that's what it seems going to do because he's a spurs guy so um, I actually had another one in mind, um, so I'll oh, let good. you continue. Yeah. Well, no, I, I mean, listen, that's fairly, fairly uh, self-explanatory of David Robinson, like one of the greatest of all time to ever do it. Um, you know, I, I started watching the Spurs when I was probably like 10 years old, and that was kind of right after they they brought Tim Duncan on board, and I didn't know what I didn't know, right? Like I wasn't this was prior to social media, like the only sports news we got in our house was through the paper because we didn't have cable or anything like that. So, you know, like Sunday afternoons, NBA on NBC, round ball rock, right? Like that era of basketball was synonymous with Michael Jordan and David Robinson. And, you know, you had the 96 Bulls and then the 99 Spurs win the championship. And 
I remember we were in a car dealership, I think, buying what ended up, at, you know, I didn't know it at the time, obviously, but I think we were buying my mom a Honda Accord because her Dodge station wagon or whatever she was driving had finally crapped out. And I remember watching those finals. I think it was the Pacers and the Spurs, if I'm not mistaken, back when, um, you know, when the Spurs won their first one with David Robinson, Tim Duncan and all them. So been a, been a Spurs fan since then. And obviously the beautiful game and all of those things and just growing up with David Robinson and just kind of being in awe of the fact that he went to the Naval Academy at seven foot mm-hmm. and was like the best player in the country. And he was at an academy that just like never happens. You know, and like knowing some of the academy coaching staffs on the women's side and like how hard they have to scrap for players and like all the strenuous things that they have to do to try to get players in because they have to be cadets also or they have to be midshipmen also. Um, Really like tremendous amount of respect for David Robinson for going that route as well. I mean, that's absolutely incredible. But anyway, I could I could drone on and on about (laughs) David Robinson uh, forever, but. Here's the real question: David Robinson in his prime or Shaq in his prime? Oh, what do we think? I gotta. I still gotta go Shaq. Yeah, he's an unstoppable object. Like, yeah. Anyway, who's your fifty? So I'm going with one of the greatest to ever do it as well. Um, and really, you could argue two things, but probably uh, for the the generations now, nobody knows what he was like as a player. I'm going with Mike Singletary as a okay, coach, yep. given yep. one of the greatest post game rants and tirades of all time uh i want winners can't win with them can't coach them can't play with them can't do it uh after i think he kicked vernon davis off the field and he he did his best gene hackman impression when he was like you know my team is on the field i'd rather play with 10 guys instead of play with 11 (laughs) vernon hit the showers you know i think he had like he slapped somebody or something didn't he, um, didn't he throw his helmet? Like I throw feel his like helmet, slap somebody, something. did something, yeah. and they got trounced by the Seahawks that day in a divisional battle. And you know he went crazy. But you know before that, Mike was a, a pretty salty linebacker. You know most people have heard of the '85 Bears, um, and uh, you know was a, I think he was Defensive Player of the Year that year. Uh, you know, incredible linebacker, and so obviously was a great player in his own right. But I think when you say Mike Singletary, the first thing that comes to people's minds most of the time now is I want winners. So I'm going with him, throwing back to his 50 in his playing days, but really a shout out to him as a, as a coach. Hey, hold on. Can you just pause the recording one second? I think the tire place just called me. I want to make sure everything's okay. So as we're, we're going forward in our decluttering season um, series, and we did, you know, the human component first. And then we really talked a lot about the culture thing. Yes. You know, not yesterday, last week, um, as we move up our pyramid in terms of the tiers of our pyramid, it's not moving up in importance. It's actually sort of, I, I, I don't know if it's a lessening importance or it's like lessened focus, but I think when we think even about professional development, as we are getting higher on our tiers, on our pyramid, so we're now at tier three, which is environmental design, practice design, a lot more to do with what are we doing on the court, but we're going to show some parallels today with how we run meetings and classrooms and office spaces and all of that stuff. Um, I think when we think about that, this is probably the place where 
coaches start to get a little more interested because it's directly related to being on the court. And we could very easily go down this rabbit hole of small-sided games and game sense approach and drills, 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 drills. Like what drills are we going to do today? You know, and like we could do that and we probably will do some of that. We'll probably nerd out a little bit on 100-point games and things like that. But the reality is we can only really get to this place, this third tier of the pyramid. We can really only get there in an aligned, clear way if we've taken care of those first two things. And if we have foundationally said, yes, we are going to operate with those two things, the first two tiers of the pyramid. So, you know, the first one being the human component, recruiting, love, empathy, all of those things. And then the second tier of the pyramid being the program and person development, a lot of that culture conversation, the climate conversation, decluttering both of those things, which then allows us to have a great clear pathway to where we can start to declutter our practice environment and really make it about the players and their experience. Um, you know, selfishly, like I hope that when coaches listen to this, there's a lot of, oh, I don't know if I thought about it that way or, oh yeah, I did think about it that way because I've been following the work that these guys do and this makes a lot of sense to me. And I think you and I get a lot of good feedback from some of our newer community members even from our old, you know, not old, but original community members where something that we say sticks out to them, like, oh, that's a great reminder because I was getting sucked back into the sauce because everybody's posting all this crap on Twitter, posting all this crap on Instagram. I see these trainers, I see this, I see that. And none of that really jives with me when all I can think about is 100 point games. When all I can think about is getting out of the way. And so before we, before we jump into it, I want to share a quick story of some of that feedback. And I think this is a shout out. I think it's probably Kip who put this feedback on Twitter to us saying like, it'd be cool if you guys on the pod showcased somebody who's in your community who took something and ran with it and like how it worked for them. I think that was him, right? I, I think that was mm -hmm, who said was. that. And so this person's not necessarily in our community as far as being like a paying member, but they're one of the people who's close to the pod and they are a head college basketball coach here in the Northeast. Uh, but he also has two twin daughters who are, I think going into the seventh or the eighth grade. And so he coaches their grassroots team. And the person that I'm talking about will know exactly who they are. It doesn't really matter for everybody else who this person is. I'm not, they don't need to, their name doesn't need to be put out there. And in, in a group text with a couple of other thought leaders in, in DEI and college athletics and, and, you know, one of our community members, Tommy Verdell, who we've talked about before, he's in this group chat as well. Uh, this person said, you know, hey, like at our grassroots practice the other day, we played one-on-one. -on -one, two-on-one, three-on-two, so on and so forth, all the way up to five-on-five. Five. And I had to consciously, like I made the decision not to interject. I consciously made the decision to stop myself from talking. And it was one of the hardest things I had to do. But what was amazing is the, that the girls, because of the systems we have in place, because of how much we've worked on our communication, because of how much our language is aligned, the girls self-corrected each other. 
And it was awesome to watch because in what seventh or eighth grade AAU grassroots practice is that happening? Right. We've talked about the live period ad nauseum. We've all been to these AAU tournaments and stuff very rarely with young kids, even with older kids, but, but especially like middle school age girls. How often is that happening? It's not. And so part of this is I appreciated that coach sharing that because, listen, he has all the expertise in the world. Right. He's been doing this for a long time. He's an excellent coach like, you know, Tobin Anderson owes this person a, a whole lot of credit for teaching him how to coach defense. That's a real story, right? Mm-hmm. All the pressing and all that stuff that didn't come from Tobin Anderson. That came from this guy and he gets no credit for that. And he should get all the credit in the world. And yet he's taken the time out to coach his daughter's team, to coach the girls in the community, coach the kids in the community and teaching them how to regulate themselves and creating an environment, right? So long walk for a, a short drink of water here creating an environment where those kids who are 13, maybe 14, maybe 12 are able to self-regulate. They're able to self-correct. They're able to self-organize. And for that entire hour and a half, two hours, however, however long they have on the court, every rep is intentional and they have to be able to figure it out. And that it was a really, really cool story that he shared with us um, in that group chat. And I just, I wanted to shout that out because that's exactly what we're talking about today. Mm -hmm. How do you do that better? How do you declutter all of those things in your environmental design and your practice design to allow your athletes to thrive in chaos? That's what we're trying to do. So I'm gonna throw it to you, Kyle. I've talked enough, uh, lead us off here and, and even reactions to that story as well. Cause I think I didn't tell you about that uh, when it happened. And so this is live reaction for everybody uh, who's listening to the pod right now. Yeah. First time I've heard that. No, that's awesome. And, and, and again, Kip's right. Like we try to share some of the feedback that we get from people um, that are, you know, real examples. It's not just, you know, things that we're making up or something like that. And so that's really awesome, especially, you know, that's not a, a professional level. It's not a collegiate level. It's not even a varsity level. It's a, a junior high level um, outside of a, you know, your typical, um, you know, high school or, or feeder system program, you know, and, and it's really neat to see that like, it is possible if, if you've got the right person in charge, creating that environment, that these things can happen and they can happen right now. It's not like we have to wait six months or a year or anything like that. And that, that probably leads me to my first point where we talked about, you know, person and cultural development was a little bit of a, a, a in the human component piece too, is more of a, a character conversation with our, our habits, I feel like this layer is where we get to have a little bit more of a climate conversation because we're talking about that next best decision right now. Like we can totally alter the environment and uh, the, you know, the ecology of the room with the very next thing that we do say, or we don't say how we tip, how we intentionally design something. And even if, if a, if a practice or a class or a meeting is not going well, we have the opportunity to change the momentum of that and the very next thing that we do. And that, that to me is where this level here is extremely exciting. And I'm not saying it's the most important or anything like that, but where I think most people are going to nerd and geek out on the tippity top with the, the X's and O's, this is the layer that gets me the most excited um, because I feel like it's one of the more controllable ones that we have. And I feel like we can have a large, large impact in this level. And, and this is where we as a professional 
get to be a little bit more expert, I think, instead of like that tip top part being like how much, how much stuff I've curated, how much information I've, this is where you really get to show off as a master coach or a master teacher or a master leader, because you're owning your space. You are the ones that are creating this environment and you have the ability to essentially manipulate that for the better. Um, and then as we talked in previous you know, episodes on this, you know, it's, it's not establishing a system that's success. It's the, you know, the continuation of that system and then transferring the ownership of that. And I think that's a huge part of, of, you know, learning environments is not where you're the sage on the stage. You know, you're, you're not teaching and telling people what to do. They are actually involved in that. And so, you know, one, one point that might come up, but I want to make sure I, I talk about it now is we're not just talking about practice. We're talking about, you know, classrooms, we're talking about meeting rooms, we're talking about any space where something is taking place. And so I, I think where one sort of mental shift that we can make is to start viewing our meeting spaces, start viewing our one-on-one our -on -one meetings, our group meetings, our departmental meetings, our practices, our individual sessions, a classroom, a, a, a locker room session, a film session, change the, the, the verbiage to all that as a learning opportunity. That's, a, that's essentially what that is. It's, a, it's an opportunity and experience, just like anything else, to get better, to get, some, get something done. So this is your, your process, your 1% better. How can we do that today? And I think a lot of it starts by some very, very intentional planning going into that space where you, uh, you know, you'll, you'll, I'm sure you'll jump in on like priming the room. We, we spend some time talking about that, but um, you know, if you've listened to the pod from the very beginning, you're going to probably hear some similar things going back to like coaching mirrors, teaching back in episode nine, uh, early twenties episodes. We did a four part piece on practice. Um, and, you know, we've talked about hacking standards. So some of those similar themes, that's where this is sort of where or this is the layer, I guess, on the pyramid where all of this stuff um, lives and breathes. And so I'm, I'm, my, my first hope is that you just start viewing, you know, players as learners, you know, students should be learners, but even, even people, stakeholders in a meeting, you know, view them, view that as a, a, a space for learning to take place. And I don't, I don't know as if we move up the, up or down the pyramid, we talk about importance, but I do think there is a direct correlation with how uh, high we go on the pyramid, a, a, a proportional relationship with how cluttered it is. I think the higher we go up the pyramid, the more decluttering needs to take place. Because I think when we start getting to practice design and then when we get to the, the X's and O's piece, the technical tactical part, those are the spaces that are the most cluttered. And they're technically should be the smallest spaces, but we've got the most stuff crammed in there. And so, um, again, what gets me really excited about this, uh, I go back to my, my grad school days and, and IO psych and six Sigma. And, you know, when we talk about decluttering to me, it's, it's efficiency, which means you have to be essential. Hello, essential coaching. We've got to, you know, be ready to, to cut the fluff and, and, and do all of that. So I'm going to throw out another term here that you and I have, have talked about. Um, I don't know if we've mentioned on the pod much, um, but you as, as the leader, the, the, the proponent of this space, you are the CEO. And by CEO, I mean chief environmental officer. And the thing I like to say, you're the CEO of flow. 
And so again, think about water flowing down a hill. Think about when, when you, you can feel it, when if you've taught before or, you, or you're in practice, you can feel those moments where everything is just sort of rolling downhill, fluid, flawless. We're getting to one thing to the next. The practice is well-planned. People are learning. There, there's not too much interjection from the coach. There's great questions. There's great feedback. You're sort of, you know, you, you have the, the ability and the willingness to sort of sit in the failure because that's where the learning is going to take place. You can sit in silence. Um, and I think this is where one area where coaches probably struggle the most is to just not say something. A lot of times it's the moments where we don't interject, where we let them struggle. It's the question that we don't ask. Or then when we do ask a question, we don't mind, uh, sitting in the silence. We don't mind sitting in sort of that awkward pause. And then we feel like we got to start talking again. Nobody likes to hear themselves talk more than a coach whether it be in practice or a post-practice a post practice huddle, a post-game huddle, team room. And it, it just, it feels like if we're not talking or we're not saying something, then something's wrong. And the more we talk, the more they're going to learn. The more we talk, the more they're going to absorb. And, and honestly, I, I believe like we couldn't be further from the truth there. A lot of times it's what we don't do. And so how do we get um, sort of to that, that decluttered stage and become the the best CEO of flow as we possibly can be. Um, and this is where I think we can, you know, turn this into a good, better, best conversation. It's not to say that your practices suck. It's not to say that your learning environment is terrible, but whatever it is you're doing, be very intentional about the reflective process. Ask yourself a couple of questions. Why are we doing this? Why is this happening? Is there intentionality behind it? And even if there is, is there a better way that we could do it? So the word that you kept saying that, and I, and I pointed to you. So in, invariably, when this gets up on YouTube, everybody will see me pointing to you when you say that, unless it's the speaker view or whatever. But the word intentionality, and I think that has become a bit of a buzzword in coaching. but. It, aimed towards players like players when you get in the gym are you being intentional and blah 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 blah, blah right i think we need to be able to turn that around and you just said it right we need to be able to turn that around and ask ourselves how intentional we're being with how we prime the room how we operate within our spaces what do our spaces look like what do they feel like all of those things that in and of itself allows people to be intentional with their actions because they have the mental clarity and the physical clarity to be intentional, right? And I think, what's the phrase? It's like the road to something is paved with good intentions. Mm. Whatever it is, the road to, what is the road to hell? Is that what it is? I don't know. I, I think so. <laughs> something like that. Anyway, good intentions in this case are sort of the starting point. Yeah. And good intentions really only come from reflection, awareness, clarity, and alignment. If we have good intentions to go look things up and be like, hey, cool, we'll like adopt this into our program instead of doing the necessary reflection to adapt something into your program with intention. Now we're not able to set up the environment to be successful. So the other questions that you asked then 
are primarily those reflective questions that create some clarity for us to know whether we should add something or what we should add or what we should be doing. And it becomes that, ex that thought experiment to say, well, instead of just turning on the film when the kids walk in the room, how are we setting the room up? Are we assigning their seats so they don't sit next to their buddy and cut up the whole time? What are our standards? We talked about standards last time. What are our standards for the film room? What are they to expect from me as the coach or from us as the coaching staff when we walk into the room? What are they supposed to bring with them? So in the programs that I'm a part of and the programs that I've run or the programs where I've been an assistant, one thing we've always done is treat basketball like a class. Our students understand what that means. Bring your notebook, bring something to write with. We're going to give you something to put in your notebook today. You might have to fill something out. You're going to be taking notes in class. We're going to be asking you questions to stimulate your thinking in our classroom, which is film. It could be lift. It could be on the court. It could be scout. It, you know, it could just be a, a, a gathering where we're doing something. Right? Everything requires your undivided attention, but we're not going to be able to get that unless the room has been primed for them. Right? So I had an assistant coach, and this is sort of where this came from for me. I wasn't always this way, Kyle, right? You know this. You and I were not always these people. I had an assistant coach who was like in his 70s. He was a former head coach at the institution that I was at. I brought him out of retirement. I may have told this story before. But I think it bears repeating of when we're talking about intentionality and priming the room. Before practice, pretty much every day, we would have some sort of classroom session, whether it was going over a chapter from the book that we were reading, whether it was film, whether it was scout, whether it was whatever, right? We would do something in the classroom to get their minds off of school, onto basketball, and there was nothing physical that had to happen. It was a reps without a rep. And my assistant coach was big on, like he was retired. He and his wife went on a lot of cruises. And when they went on these cruises, they would always come back with more stuff than they had packed because they kept winning all the cruise competitions. So they would go to the cruise trivia night. They would go to the, you know, they'd play these ridiculous games on a cruise ship to keep people entertained, especially like on the sailing days. And they were two people, he and his wife, Sherry, who like, they loved participating in it. And so he started to write down all the rules to the game. And they've been doing this for like 20 some odd years. So he had this whole like treasure trove of these activities that we would just start doing before film sessions. So it could be trivia. It could be, you know, some like island. There's some, I forget what it was called, like some icebreaker type thing but like the kids would be up and they'd be moving and they'd sort of be like getting their minds loose from being tightened all day in the classroom in school right we wanted basketball to be the most fun class that they took and what we started to realize was us just doing that for like five to seven minutes at the beginning of a film session the kids were so engaged throughout the whole film session I really had not, I didn't really have to say a lot. He didn't really have to say a lot. The kids said a lot. The kids were the ones talking to each other about what they saw on the film. We were able to ask better guiding questions because they had already had to use their brains just a little bit 
just a little bit, nothing strenuous, just a little bit. And so it started to prime the juices in their brain to synapse a little faster. And so then we started thinking about, well, why don't we prime our gym that way? What are we doing in the warm-up that gets our kids mentally engaged? And that's where all these mental transition games that we started playing come from. We knew we needed to do something different because our kids needed something different. And so when we think about the environmental design, it's not just what drills are we running today? How much feedback am I giving today, right? That's a little bit robotic. It's what is going to get our players' brains to function at the edge of the speed at which they can function? What's gonna get their bodies to match that? And if we see that it's not working, do we have a way to adjust that dial to either turn it up or turn it down? And that's our job in environmental design. And so when I think about priming the room and priming practice, helping them to open their minds first creates the opportunity for clarity because we are decluttering all the other intrusive and oppressive thoughts they may have from whatever they've encountered that day, that week, that month, that year, right? That's the level to which you can think about this as a coach. You may not be a trained psychologist. Like I'm not a trained psychologist. I don't have a PhD in psychology. You have a master's in IO psych. But realistically, this is sort of like, I wouldn't say it's common sense because I don't think it is. But I think with a little bit of work and a little bit of intentionality, you can get to a place where maybe not every day because it's impossible to do something every day like perfectly. But more often than not, you're going to find that if you are priming the room that way and if you are doing something that loosens the player's connections in their own mind and it allows a little more space for them to fill with basketball things or with sport things or whatever, your practices are going to go better. Your film sessions are going to go better. You're going to be less frustrated because that is part of decluttering because we're intentionally priming the room. You just said less frustrated. I feel like that's what this is about, right? Like the more decluttered we are, the less frustrated we are because we're removing a lot of the friction. It's like walking with pebbles in your shoe, right? Like you want to be able to get that out of there. So things are moving smoothly. Again, I go back to the word flow and you also use the word speed. So I go back to our priorities again, speed and connection, engagement, health, a great, you know, learning environment again, which could be a meeting space, classroom, practice field, whatever is prioritizing those things, speed, connection, engagement, and health. The, the more those are, are taken care of, and I think if you look at the space, if you evaluate the space pre, during, and post, the more likely you are to hit those priorities, the more flow you're going to have. Flow means less friction. Less friction equals less frustration on your part. And I, I, I know... Again, I, I have a hard, uh, almost a harder time thinking about this in my basketball days as a coach. I, I go to the, the classroom more often where I can feel that this is just not going the way it's supposed to. This lesson, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Everybody had a lesson plan ready until little Johnny came in and was on one one day. Or so-and-so did something in the class prior and that, you know. Or the projector happened, didn't work. Or, right. Or your environment lets you down. Yep. Your technology yep. lets you down. There's a fire alarm. There's an, you're, or you're in the middle of a, of a, a beautiful flowing lesson 
And then Mr. Kavanaugh, so-and-so needs to check out, blah, blah, blah. And now you've lost their attention, right? Like that's something we don't talk about in schools ever that you could get interrupted like that. And it, and it, could, it can throw everything off. And all that work you did to get into that flow, it takes so little to knock it off. And then it takes so much more potentially to try to get you back. If you've ever taught junior high, think of the top two or three things that can throw throw a lesson off. These kids are gross. You know what I mean? Like it doesn't seventh and eighth grade boys as a whole just throw it off. I mean, you're you're walking on a tightrope the entire time. Like you you're lucky if you get through a class without something creating more friction. And that that like that entropy is always just sort of like one moment away. But you can still insulate yourself from a lot of these things and, and, and create systems and stuff like that. And that's why I feel like this is a great climate conversation, because, yeah, if it's going poorly, we can change it for the better. And if it's going well, it can change for the for the worse. Um, and so I feel like that's where this is that art of coaching. And we talk a lot about feel over fundamentals with our players. I think this is feel over fundamentals with us as 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 CEOs of flow of, of coaches as teachers, it's our ability to, to tell when something doesn't feel right. Like the vibe is off. Um, and, and, and that to me is where you can't, you can't just read your way to this. You can't just formula your way to this. You've got to be able to, to immerse yourself and integrate yourself into that that lesson, and that's why if you're not if you're not engaged as the coach or the teacher, it's going to be very difficult to sort of navigate your way through a lot of this. Um, and so, yeah, I think the, the the priming part is is important because it can set you up for a certain level of success. But that's really just the the first part of that, the well intentioned priming. But then you've got to be able to navigate all the things that are thrown at you. And so, if you think about like rafting, like you're flowing down a river, right? And everything is going well, but then all of a sudden there's a rock in the way or a tree that fell. And you, maybe you raft that river every single day, but the, every single time you go down that river, it's different. You might know the river like the back of your own hand, and there might be, you know, some some commonalities to it and some things that you're used to. But in an instant, you know, the weather could change. Something could be different. There could be it could be more crowded. There could be a tree down. This happened. That happened you've got to stay fully aware and fully engaged as best you possibly can to sort of handle all of those things uh, that, that come at you. And, you know, for, for those of you that are, you know, maybe coaching in smaller schools and you've got to share gym time, like you've ever tried to practice with the girls team in the gym while you're the boys coach. Have you ever tried to practice with the junior high team in there? Have you ever tried to practice while the cheer squad is working on their pregame routine while you're doing a shoot around? Have you ever, had to go across town to a, a church gym and practice somewhere else where you don't even know if the goals are going to be where they need to be. And you don't really know the environment that you're walking into. So there's definitely a lot of variables and stuff that we sometimes we can't necessarily plan for. But the more we can plan for those, I think the more uh, likely we can stay sort of adaptable, the more flexible we can be and we can and we can make, you know, these decisions a little bit quicker and more freely because we're not fighting all this unnecessary gunk where we've sort of decluttered and cleaned it out. So that way, when something does happen, we can attack that head on and we can hit it right then and there. We don't have to kick the can down the road and rely on hope that it's going to get better and all those things. And the other point that I, I thought of while you were talking um, was just 
and maybe this goes back to the climate a little bit, but I remember in like my behavioral uh, psychology classes and, and textbooks that I would, I would go back and read that the point that you can't always change somebody's values. You know, we are who we are. We grow up in certain situations. We're all different. We're raised, you know, even if there's a sort of a broad culture, there's always a little bit of nuances and things to even similar cultures. Um, sometimes you don't really get, you don't pick who's in your classroom. Sometimes you don't get to pick who's on your team. Sometimes even in a role where you're trying to hire a new staff, like I am, you know, you, you might be given some people and you might have some flexibility that you're trying to hire an assistant coach right now, right? Like you kind of have to largely work with what you've got. And yeah, we want to try to train people up and, and get them sold on the team and yada, yada, yada. But changing somebody's values is really, really difficult. And sometimes it's a fool's errand. But what you can change is their behavior. You're much more likely to change someone's behavior due to circumstances or what you've designed ecologically within that environment than you are who they are as a person. There's more leeway there. And so if, you, if you've ever been to an airport, what do they put up to get in line? right? To either check in, to go through security, whatever. You have to go through those little stanchions with the little ropes, or if you've been to a movie theater, just simply putting something up and changing the environment, people know, okay, I automatically have to file into queue. Where if you didn't have those, imagine what airport security would look like trying to go through the gate. So I'm not, I can't control who shows up at the airport every day. We're all different, but I can get you through certain systems to sort of tweak or change your behavior a little bit. And you think about coming into a classroom, like I'm going to put your names on the desk on the first day of school. So you don't have to guess where you're going to sit. You know, kids are nervous, that kind of stuff. There's a lot of little things that don't take a lot of talent, you know, intelligence, money, where we can, we can tweak these things. And me moving into my new office space, this big suite that I've got, you know, all these cubicles and there's a, there's a, uh, um, what am I trying to say? Like a big meeting table. There's some clutter in some corners. There's one office that's kind of turned into a storage unit, but it really could be an office. There's a big, big beautiful open wall space over here. My mind immediately goes to, okay, how can we make this space the most efficient space as possible? How does it get to where if somebody walks in this room, I can get a touch point with them. And I don't necessarily have to document every single time that I talk to you. I'm going to get that because I've intentionally set up an environment to where we're going to, we're going to naturally build that into the room. And that when we get ready to meet or when we need to have a space for ideas or I need to be accessible or we need to move from one thing to the next, there's going to be an intentionality behind it. And how I decide to set that up might be a total failure. That's okay. But at least there was a little bit of that good intention to it, right? Like, as you said, and we can always tweak and adapt. And so me now having to run sporting events, game scripts for football, basketball, volleyball, like my mind immediately goes to, okay, how does this best flow? How do we reduce the friction? How do we get people on and off the field for a promotion? How do we seamlessly transition from the DJ to the PA, to the in-house music, to the replay, to halftime, to the band? All of those things come into play. And there will be many mistakes made along the way. There will be a lot of things that seem like good ideas, well-intentioned. Again, that's a great start, but I think we do have to continually, continually be reflective 
and evaluate that space. Again, pre, during, and then break it down post. So I'm glad you ended on post because this is something that I've been thinking about um, for a while. And especially during this conversation, I have it starred here on my little notebook. Post game. So when you're talking about breaking it down in post, I am now a firm believer, and I've never had the opportunity to do this in practice. And I say in practice, not like in practice, practice, but like actually do this just in my own program. I'm going to this year. Um, I don't know if there's value in breaking things down right after the game. So like thinking about going into the locker room after the game. No matter how intentional, and, and Kyle, I want your thoughts on this from not just a coaching perspective, but also from a leadership in your department perspective, for example. I don't know how much value there is. Even if we're super intentional about like how we've set up the locker room or the space or like the questions that we're asking, any of that stuff. I don't, is there any value in actually discussing it right after the game happens or right after the event happens? I'm not going to say there's not any value because I think we can probably get something out of it. Maybe we yeah. could argue that it's better to do it then than not do it at all, perhaps, you know, so now we're Goldilocksing. Where's our balance? Right. Um, but correct me if I'm wrong. Maybe I saw this on Twitter or we talked about this, but our, our friend Sahar. Yep, that's exactly where I'm going with that. Yeah, yeah, so sorry to steal the thunder here. but No, no, it's okay. It's all right. You know, new head coach uh, at Canisius, right? Um, Canisius, yeah. Yep. yep. She doesn't talk after the game. She lets them go home. You know, a quick little something on the court right after the game. Yep. I love, I, I love y'all. This is great. You know, blah, blah, blah. We'll talk about it tomorrow. Go get dressed, go be with your friends, go be with your family, go eat, go do whatever. But we're not going to have this. I mean, it's almost like this emotional buildup and, and like players know who their coaches are, who's walking in that room, 30 point win, 30 point loss, one point win, one point loss, nail biter, triple overtime. Kids already kind of know like, okay, Coach version of coach is coming in here. Right. Do we really need to kind of go through this again? Whereas let the dust settle, let it happen, all of that. And then we'll come back and we'll handle it tomorrow. I don't know many coaches that actually do that. I certainly don't know many that would admit it. But I, I think about her often um, when it comes to those kinds of things. And, and, and that example kind of constantly runs through my mind where it's not that you're kicking the can down the road in this case, but is there a better way? Why are we doing this now? Why do we have to debrief all of this stuff right after the game? Because everybody else in the country does it. But is there a better way to do it or not? And that's that's where my head went. It sounds like that's where yours was, was going. That's too. exactly where it went. I mean, I literally have it written right here. Like, do we need immediate feedback? And this is part of creating the environment, sort of like the not the immediate environment that we're walking into, but like the, the climate within the program, right? Like this is a climate conversation about this particular thing, but I think it bears sort of like 
I think it bears thinking about for any walk of life. So like, you know, the 24 hour rule with parents, right? That exists for a reason that we want to let the dust settle, whatever, right? Why don't we have that 24 hour rule with our players too? Are we that all knowing and that we can, you know, ascertain like exactly what happened, even though we will readily as coaches admit, especially in basketball. So I will say this for basketball, basketball coaches have the worst vantage point of any coach maybe besides soccer because the field is so big, but like standing on the sideline versus sitting up in the box, like a football coordinator does like our, our buddy Bubba, who's up in the box, he has the best view of anybody. He knows exactly what happened because he can see all of it, not just what's right in front of him. And so I think when we think about like our perception of what happened, versus what actually happened we don't need immediate feedback about the entirety of the game that is usually based on the result of said game until after we've had a chance to see it from 30,000 feet. 